Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Off the Shelf this morning. I'm getting in, you guys, and I'm looking at my platform, and every morning is something different. They change something, so I'm still trying to figure out how to open up the chat, but we are ready to rock and roll this morning. This the day before Easter, and for those happy Passover, happy Easter, whatever holiday that you are celebrating, I'm always shocked. I mean, these are two of the biggest holidays globally, but every day seems like there's some holiday now. But um, I want to wish you a blessed Easter and a blessed Passover. Before we introduce to you our phenomenal guest this morning, check out this word from Miss Helen Keller, and she shared with us before she departed this world, optimism is the faith that leads to achievement. Nothing can be done without hope and confidence. And this is a woman who definitely, from her start in this physical world, had, she would know, because she definitely had to have hope, faith, trust, confidence to change her early circumstances. And again, she says, optimism is the faith that leads to achievement. Nothing can be done without hope and confidence. And yes, you are listening to the winning book radio show off the shelf. Welcome to this April the 20th show. Before I introduce you, and I am so excited about the show, you know, you guys, 14 years, we have been fortunate to interview people who've been on CNN, TV One, New York Times bestselling authors, movie producers, and I am very excited about today's show. This is something different uh, since we've been on the show. I learned something from every guest, and I hope that you do too, and I think you'll be excited when I share with you who we have with us this morning. But before I do that, I just want to ask you, how good of a mystery sleuth are you? When you hear about something, whether it's something that you heard on the news that happened and they say, we are searching for, or there's just something in science that we're trying to figure out, or something fictional, it could be like an Agatha Christie story, and you you see something's happened, and who did it? Or you maybe you know who did it, like you watch Columbo, you know who did it, or Monk. You want to know who did it or why they did it. If you're one of those people that has that mystery, i got to figure it out before the person rebuilds it, mine, I do believe you will love, love, pour over me. But even more, there is a soulmate relationship in love, pour over me, for the romantic, and then there's a complicated father and son relationship. The father has untreated alcoholism, and unfortunately there are millions of people who are adults of, of who grew up in a home with, with alcoholism, and they might get treatments or therapy for the rest of their days, do a lot of self-love and a lot of self-help. If one or even all of these apply to you, I really encourage you to stop what you're doing and get a copy of Love Pour Over Me right now. You can get it in ebook or in print format. And if you don't see it on the store shelf, just ask the clerk for a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney. But you could click over to Barnes & Noble or Amazon and get a copy now for just $3. Think of the Amazon is like $3.03 or $3.99. But you wouldn't pay no more than $3 and some change. I encourage you to do that now and let me know how you enjoyed Love Pour Over Me. And now 
Let us go and meet this special off-the-shelf guest who is waiting, waiting to share with us what she has learned on her journey so far. And our special guest this morning is Deborah Yates. Now, Deborah is an Ohio native and the author of the book, Woman of Many Names. A yearning to learn more about her family history is part of what sparked Deborah's writing passion. Now, she is the seventh great-granddaughter of Nancy Ward. If you do some searching, you'll be like, oh, my God. She is the seventh great-granddaughter of Nancy Ward, and Nancy Ward is a Cherokee high priestess. In 2018, Tennessee paid homage to Nancy Ward, building and establishing monuments for her. And about that experience, Deborah is reporting in the Cleveland Daily Banner is saying, I think we all have a responsibility to keep her memory alive, and everybody here is doing a fabulous job of doing that. And she continued, our grandmother has been gone almost 200 years now, and look at the people here today to honor and pay homage to her. Deborah's book, Woman of Many Names, carries on Nancy Ward's legacy, introducing her to new historians and readers. And very well received, Woman of Many Names promises to be the start of a rewarding and remarkable writing career for Deborah. And we are honored to have Deborah Yates here with us on Off the Shelf this morning. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Off the Shelf, Deborah. Good morning, Denise, and thank you for that beautiful introduction, and thank you for having me with you today. It's quite an honor. We are honored to have you here with us. I wanted to begin just for our listeners uh, to ask you, do you have a website? And if you do, could you give us your website URL so our listeners could check you out online while they're watching, listening to the interview? Well, they go to Facebook and go into the search bar and plug in Woman of Many Names. The um, The Facebook page will show up and just click like and it will show you all a lot of the events that I've done over the last three years, how to order the book, how to get in contact with me personally if you would like to, if you have any questions. And, um, of course, the book is for sale. And all the bookstores now it may not be on the shelf in your bookstore, but it can be ordered off at, you know, Amazon, Books, Books a Million, Barnes & Noble. So with a lot of the Barnes & Nobles in Tennessee and Florida – are carrying it because I do now reside in Florida and have visited a lot of the wonderful Barnes and Noble stores for, you know, book fairs and so on and so forth. Okay, okay. Well, so for Facebook, that would be the place to go then for our off-the-shelf yes. listeners. Um, yes, I mean, I you wanna... can research me, Deborah Yates, also, and a lot of things pop up. A few of the interviews have been posted online. A um, couple television things have been, you know, up there too. So, you know, it's been a wonderful um, experience for me, one I never, never, never expected in my entire life. I mean, not very many authors wait until they're in their 50s to attempt to write a book. And I wasn't attempting to write a book when this all happened. Things just kind of fell into place. And um, I was basically just writing down all the stories that I knew of um, my seventh great-grandmother, Nanyi, as as I call her. And most okay. of the rest of the world calls her Nancy Ward. <laughs> yeah, so, you know what, um, and I, when, I I was, the, when, I was, when I was doing a little bit of research, I did see 
the the other sp- uh, spelling for her name. Um, so yeah. uh, the first two questions I'm going to ask you before we go into talking about a woman of many names and your great grandmother. These questions I ask every guest who comes on off the shelf to give our listeners a little backstory on the guest before we launch into their book. So to begin, could you tell off the shelf listeners? Um, Deborah, where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Well, I had a very interesting young life, I would say. Um, I was um, born of, you know, um, love, hopefully, lots of it. And um, my father um, was a young welder assistant and um, then became a welder. My mother um, married my father very young. She was like a smitten kitten, and at 17, they run off and got married. So, And then about a year later, oh. surprise, here comes Deborah. Um, but we followed my father around the country. He was, you know, a natural gas welder, and we just had to go where the work was. So about every three to six months, our little trailer would get hooked onto the back of Daddy's welding truck, and off we go, and you just never knew where we were going to end up from from one uh, month to the next. But it did give me a, um, you know, a, a true sense of family. All we had was each other. And, you know, when you get to these places and you're only there for just a little bit, it's hard to make friends and so on and so forth. So when I got to be about five or six years old, the the pain of losing each new friend got to me, and I just quit you know, putting myself out there and, you know, to to make friends because I knew in a few months I was going to leave them. And, you know, that just hurt a little too much. And my mom was the same way. So it was just kind of for the first few years, just her and I, you know, kind of against the whole wide world is what it seemed like. But um, And then as, um, you know, my brother came along and we settled in the uh, Lexington, Ohio area, which is just about in the middle of Ohio. And, and, Fortunately, got to stay there until I graduated from fifth grade through graduation. So I was then able to make those friends and form those, you know, close friendships that, you know, all people need. So from there, I went to college and um, went, you know, to a business school and just kind of learned the ins and outs of, you know, accounting and bookkeeping and stuff like that because I already had a job working with the company my father started, Mid-Ohio Pipeline Company. And from there, you know, it just, the world was my oyster. And I was lucky enough to be able to travel all over and have a lot of different types of jobs that, you know, that I just adored. And um, not necessarily in in, uh, the business field. Business, yes. I loved the pet store. I loved working in the pet store, managing pet stores. Then I ended up in back in Ohio back in the 80s and went to work for um, um, a local um, greenhouse called Wade and Gat Nurseries. And that's kind of where my love for plants and things developed. And I didn't know that I loved plants so much, but I figured it out real quick. Uh, the week before I started, my book, I went and rented all the books I could read and you know, read everything up on plants and trees and different things like that. And when I went in the next week, my boss looked at me and he goes, uh, you told me you didn't know anything about plants and trees. And I went, well, <laughs> I went and studied, okay. He goes, and you learned all this in a week. And I went, you know, I really don't know where I learned all this. 
I said, it kind of really came pretty easy to me then. So then at that juncture, uh, a week I was a part-time employee, and at the next the end of the next week I was the manager of the garden center. So, oh, my goodness. <laughs> no. How does that happen? How does that happen? But so I, you know, just spent the next, you know, 15 years just, you know, just loving plants and trees. And, you know, of course, I, not of course, I guess you don't know that. But I had a large farm with horses and dogs and cats and fed everything that was stray, including the neighbor's kids to their dogs. So it was fun. I, I've had a wonderful, wonderful life. And um, then when I, life changed for me, I moved to Florida and, you know, and had a lot of time on my hands. My cousin goes, hey, did you know that our grandmother, Nancy Ward, has a park in Benton, Tennessee that's named after her in a boat ramp? And I went, no. She goes, well, can you go? And I went, I'm in South Carolina. And let me get my map. So I looked at the map, and I'm going, there is no easy way from the ocean <laughs> to Benton, Tennessee. So I turn around the next day, go back down south, and go back north. And I get to this beautiful spot, and it's got a you know a beautiful valley and a river running through it, and this hill. And lo and behold, the sign at the bottom says, "My grandmother's buried up there." I had no idea she was buried there. My grandpa didn't tell me that part of the story. So, anyways, I ascended that hill, and as I did, it was like, oh my gosh, my life makes sense to me now. Things are starting to just click in my head and things are making more sense and I get up to the top of the hill and I was just overwhelmed with emotion when I saw her tomb. And there's two more there also. Her brother Longfellow's there and her son Littlefellow Five Killer is there or um, Private Morgan, which he was known in the War of 1812. They were all there. And it was like, oh, my heart just started beating. It just started beating so hard. And then I was overwhelmed with all these feelings and all these thoughts. And I could hear all these things being said. And I'm going, I don't understand what's being said because I don't know foreign language. And so I was up there for, I don't know how long I was up there. I think hours. Just all this information feeding into my body like it was just coming into me like, it was being like an infusion into my body. And I'm going, oh, my gosh, I was just so overwhelmed. So by the time I crawled back down to my car, I called my girlfriend. I was hysterical, not laughing, by the way. And my girlfriend's, you know, she's going, saying, she's going, what's wrong, Deborah? what's wrong? And I said, I said, I'm at grandma, my grandmother's grave. And I said, you won't believe what's happening to me. And she goes, what's happening to you? I said, I'm I'm speaking a language. She goes, Deborah, you don't speak a foreign language. I said, I know. She goes, write it down. So I started writing all these phrases and things, words that were just just coming to me like, like it was natural. And um, at that point, I, you know, barely made it up the road to find out in the night. Went back the next morning and it was, it was like a divining rod. Like I knew things that I I didn't know how I knew them. 
And, um, I mean, I knew the stories my grandparents had told me. I knew the stories that their siblings had told me. I knew the few things that I'd read in, in books, but this was different kind of knowledge. So in the interim, I after all this was over and I could breathe and I wrote all that stuff down, about a year later I found a interesting gentleman up in the same area. And I said, do you know anybody that knows Cherokee? He says, well, yeah, I do. And I said, okay, could I meet him? And he says, well, of course you can meet him. So he took me to meet this, um, I'd say he was probably in his 80s at the time, maybe even a little older because some of us Native Americans hold our age really well and some don't. But anyway, he didn't. Anyways, um, so what I'm thinking is, is I'll get him to transcribe all this stuff for me, and, you know, that way I'll know what I was saying. Because, I mean, I believe in people speaking in tongues, but I also believe that there should be somebody there to interpret for the other folks. Well, in this case, I was the only other folk. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like it was I, it was coming through me. So he 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 looked at me midway through and he said, where did you get this? Tell you when you're done. (laughs) So he kept right on working. And a minute later, he looks at me, he goes, no, where did you get these words? And I said, "Um, I heard them. He goes, okay. So he finishes up and he looks at me. He says, ma'am, he says, I don't know where you got this from. He said, but this is high and low an ancient Cherokee. And I went, oh, okay, that's really nice. (laughs) Wow. But that little story alone I have not published yet. It's beautiful. The words that came to me that day were beautiful. And I have spent the last probably nine years trying to figure out who was saying what to whom. I firmly believe now in the last few years that it was my grandfather talking to either me or Nanyi, one or the other thoughts and feelings that were his. And I had long been told uh, from my grandfather that where um, that my grandfather had been brought from Georgia back to Tennessee when he died and was pulled out on top of a hill. I'm beginning to wonder if that one the hill he was pulled out on. So, um, I have been speaking with a, a, a very famous man called Arthur Bohannon, and he is what they call Dr. Bones. And Dr. Bones has worked all over the world, and he works with trying to find dead and buried bodies. Uh, he believes that the electromagnetic field of a person's soul and body stays in the area where they were buried or where they laid for, even if they only laid there for 48 hours, and there's some of the body fluid started to come out. It's just amazing. He he tells me that Nanyahi's gravesite is the fifth most electrical spot in the United States of America, and I believe him. Every time I am there, the hair on my body just raises right up. It's like I've walked into you know, a sacred place. And it is a sacred place. Of course it is. A, a famous chieftainess, prophetess, lover of the Cherokee people, you know, is buried there. She is 
you know, one of the few women other than Pocahontas and Sacagawea that's really even mentioned from that area. Oh, all the way, also Belle Starr, whom I happen to be distantly related to, too. She's in history, too. Um, you know, it just, you know, it's all an over overwhelming thing, and I'm almost losing my train of thought here trying to explain this. It's a, a magical place, even if you just want to go just to to sit somewhere where the electrical current is so strong. Uh, Clingman's Dome, I think, is um, is number three, which is not too terribly far from there, the way the crow clock flies anyways. You know, in Sedona, these are very electrical, powerful places that I believe that our spirits just sing with the folks on the other side. They just sing with them. And... Um, you know, I hope that's not too far out there for you, Denise. Is no, it? no, no, not, 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 not <laughs> at all. Uh, but that it, it is interesting. I think it's, I think it's um, the the it, it, the messaging comes, and I've heard other people who've received full books, and this is similar yes. to how people got messaging in the scriptures. Now, you know what's so funny? Yes. If you tell somebody you had this experience, they'll say, "Oh, that's hogwash. That's from something sure. bad." Or dark but mm-hmm. that's the way the messages were received in the scriptures the same way so you you say well that's the way they received the message how is it suddenly different so uh, listen it, it, there's seven gifts god lists them in the bible and by gum that's one of them so i yeah. know it's not evil i've been a practicing christian you know since before i can remember i was the youngest person baptized into the southern baptist faith at, at eight years old, and if anybody knows Baptists, they're not easy to let, you know, young folks um, be baptized. And there was uh, four pastors that came to our house and questioned and grilled me about the Bible. I think I might have been seven when that happened. And um, huh, they looked at my mother after the interview was over, after that lengthy interview with all those, you know, Bible scholars told my mother I needed to be baptized. She said, yes, she understands and she needs to be baptized because she's, you know, she's young, but she understands the difference between right and wrong and the difference between God. She knows how these, all these stories, how old was she when she started reading? And mom, I think my mom told him I was about four. And um, they said, well, who taught her to read it for? And she goes, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Oh my I, I was goodness. reading and writing at three. <laughs> yeah, you, and Crazy. you know, every every one of us, I, I guess our experience or expression is different. But it just, I just put that point out there because some people think that whatever God was doing, He didn't start doing it till they wrote the Bible, and He stopped afterwards. And I just don't agree with that. And so, whoever's whoever's available to receive the message. That's the way they received them when they wrote the Bible, or, and then also from the recollections uh, for the New Testament. But it's just messaging that comes through. You can't explain why you're where you are when you are, <laughs> but it's your experience. Uh-huh. Other people don't have to believe it, but you can say this did happen to me. It might not have happened to you, so you don't. You might have disbelief, but well, it sure happened to me. Now, when you were a kid, you started reading at three and four. What did you dream of becoming? You know, like some kids say, "Oh, I want to be a." I want to be a dancer, or I want to be—I want to be a teacher, or I want to be an astronaut. What did you dream of becoming when you were a kid? A psychiatrist. Oh. I wanted to be a shrink. 
really badly. <laughs> I wanted to be a shrink because <laughs> I thought that would explain everything that went on around me. Um, and then when I was, I was probably 17, and, you know, I was like the go-to girl. All my friends came to me with their problems and, you know, and um, something, you know, transpired with one of my friends and I couldn't answer them. And I got very, very upset. I And I decided at that juncture I probably wasn't cut out for the psychiatric field because I already knew that I was, like, very sensitive to people's emotions. Um, mm-hmm. Generally, if I know you, all I got to do is look at you, and I'm going to know if there's something wrong, if you're upset or whatever. Okay, what's wrong? I just felt that I wasn't a strong enough then individual to be able to take on all these problems for people and not take them on. I knew I wouldn't be able to walk away from people's issues, that I would pick it up and carry it with me. And um, so I changed my mind. And, you know, our family ran a, uh, a, you know, a gas business, and I thought, you know, this is what I'm meant. You know, this is what I need to do. This will be better. I can stay home. I don't have to worry so much about what's going on with other people. I can just play with the gas and there won't be any problems. So, you know, that was, you know, a, a big letdown for me because that's what I always thought I wanted. And I'm glad that I had the, you know, the foresight to realize I wasn't cut out for it. And I'm not. I'm not. I take on all my friends' problems, my family's problems. I'm the fixer. I'm the fixer. And, uh, or I try to anyways when I can. But, um, and Nancy Ward was very much a lot of those things also. You know, I've never compared myself to anybody that writes, you know, and it was God-given like the Bible stuff. What I compare it to is is where did Mozart get at, you know, age five or six? How was he able to write a concerto? I mean, yes, I believe that is God-given. I believe that God does allow us to... to um, to know things. I don't believe it's evil. It's precognition. There's so many different gifts that God can give out and God can take away. And mine have morphed over the years. One time it's this, a few decades later it's that. And so I believe I had a lot of life lessons to learn on this earth and um, so that they will, you know, come in real handy when we get to the next dimension, the next level. Of, of where we go, because this isn't it. This isn't it. We go on. I have, I have, see, I've been clinically dead twice and almost dead two more times. And let me tell you, there's more there. Mm-hmm. There's more there, you, and it's beautiful. Can you tell us the role that your your? And first of all, what does it mean to be the seventh? When you you said you you are what what is that I was when I was doing the research I'm a seventh I'm a seventh great granddaughter of Nancy Ward um, I am not a ward I am a kingfisher now Nancy was married multiple times uh, the first time she married my grandfather whose name was Kingfisher and he was um, a Native American from the Deer Clan and then she after his death. A while later, and probably not too long later either, according to my family anyway, she married a man named Bryant Ward, who was from Scotland, 
who was a cousin to Lucy Ward, who was a lady in waiting for King George the Second, I believe it was the second, um, wife. And I think her name was, uh, I'm not even going to go there what her name was. I've forgotten now. Um, so it was like an interesting kind of thing. So actually, Bryant Ward knew who Nanyi was because Lucy Ward, when a contingency of Native Americans went to meet King, the King of England, um, met and fell in love with a lady-in-waiting. She ended up coming to America to marry Oconestoa, which was my uncle, which would have been my seventh great-grandmother's uncle, who actually served as her father since her father died before she was even born. And I know it's all very strange, isn't it? So anyways, that was her cousin. (laughs) And they would converse and write letters and stuff back and forth. And when my grandmother, Nancy Ward, was born, Lucy also gave birth. Lucy Ward also gave birth on that day. Her baby died, and Nanyahi's mother took her baby like the next day or so and offered her to Nancy Ward, the future Nancy Ward, to Lucy because she lost her baby. And um, she declined. She gave her back to, to my eighth great-grandmother and said, no, I can't do that. And um, at that juncture, um, there was a fable then that came along that my grandmother was actually raised by Lucy Ward, which was not true. Um, she was raised by her own mother. But what a beautiful gesture that could be, you know, um, you know, because she loved her sister-in-law that much. Here, take this baby. You know, she didn't have a father for that baby. But, um, you know, there was, you know, a, a legend that had been going on well before my grandmother's, seventh great-grandmother's birth in um, the 1700s, that there would be a great warrior, woman warrior, rise among the Wolf Clan that would lead her people to greatness. And as my grandmother was being bathed in the river on the day of her birth, even though it was, you know, cold as any of the Dickens outside, um, that's something we did. Native American Cherokee people took a bath every day. You didn't skip unless you were like, you know, deathly ill. You might skip them, but it was our practice to be clean. And that way the animals, you know, when we would hunt, they wouldn't smell us so easy because, you know, dirt smells. So we taught the Europeans, all them guys, how to bathe. They, they learned those bathing habits from us. They still don't bathe like we do over there. You know, I mean, they're every other day. We're like mostly every day. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, you know, something that our culture required of us to be clean. So um, as this, the grandmother was walking up out of the water, the white wolf appeared above her. And... I believe telepathically the wolf wasn't standing there talking. They, that was the sign that this was the baby. 
that was going to lead her people to greatness because it was below the sun, the below the white wolf. The white wolf was high. Grandmom's coming out of the water, carrying this child. So I believe Sugi um, and them understood that this child was different. This child was going to be special. So as she grew, she was always in the council house with her with her uncles, her father uncles. Because when in the Cherokee culture, when a, an Indian man and an Indian woman or whoever marries this Indian woman, they all promise that if anything happens to father, that they will help raise that orphan child as their own. So that's kind of how that goes. So you don't really have an orphan system. You know, they are readopted by somebody else, and that just becomes your father. And um, so it was, you know, it's just, you know, a beautiful, beautiful story. You know, is it kind of like, you know, George Washington and the woman wooden teeth and chopping down the apple tree? I don't know. But legends start from something, most generally. They're not just made up. They start from something. And, um, you know, just just amazing woman. The, the things that she was able to learn, she learned English, she learned to write, she learned multiple languages. She had to know the high, the low, the ancient, the Cherokee, and the trader language as well, because that the all the Native Americans in America traded with each other. And there was routes for this trading, and there were certain certain trader, you know, people that did this, they would run these paths and, you know, you know, we'd get um, different things from out west, you know, maybe it was peyote. We'd get shells and different things from the south and, you know, salt and we would get, you know, wampum from the northeast area where wampum comes up on the shores and it's a really pretty purple stone or Mm -hmm. shell and that's what we used as currency for money was wampum. Um, ah. back in those days. Yeah, money, money, money. <laughs> the root of all. Can you tell us, you know? what role did your great-grandmother play in helping to form the state of Tennessee? And what was it, what was it called? Did they get, the Native Americans like the Cherokees and the different, you know, there were different yeah. tribes. And, and, I, and then, then I wanted to ask you about were there tribal wars like there, you know, in Africa yeah. after the colonists came in. It really yes. exacerbated things, and they had more tribal wars after the colonists came in because the colonists yes. didn't yes, understand. They did, did not understand the African culture at all and thought well, that everybody's all the same, and it caused a lot of problems. But right. Sure it did, honey. Sure it did. Um, we we called our area Tennessee, T-E-N-A-S-S-E, Tennessee. So as you can tell, they massacred that and put it into Tennessee, but it should have been called Tennessee, and Kentucky was Kentucky, and <laughs> Georgia, I'm not okay. sure about any of those words. But um, um, grandmother Nancy uh, sold Kentucky to Daniel Boone, who was um, the, the negotiator employee of the Transylvania Company. So we saw we weren't going to be able to hold our hunting grounds and uh, keep them secure anymore. We were losing them anyway, so why not sell it and make something off of it, you know, before we lose it, before they just take it. So um, she actually sold it to Daniel Boone. So that's where the Daniel Boone connection comes in. 
and um, they were very fond of each other. In his um, memoirs, other than his wife and daughters, my grandmother is the only other woman that he spoke of, and he called her the handsomest woman he ever seen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you take that for what it's worth. And I have read the I have read it in one of his books. I can't remember which one because you know after a while the names of all these books just kind of got a fuzz in your brain. But okay. uh, yeah, I did, did I did read that in one of his. And I actually had Boone Boone people come up to me and they go, you know about our grandparents, right? And I went, yes, I know. And um, I don't believe there I there was no children ever born of that union, but. I think if she could have had one of Daniel's kids, she would have. Um, you know, it's just pretty crazy amazing, the, the people that she knew. Now, the correlation to George Washington, we know she wrote him letters. Um, and we know that she met more than once, multiple times with Thomas Jefferson. Um, when Thomas Jefferson's, one of his, desks had been sold off. I don't know if it was sold off or in storage or whatever. And when they were refurbishing that, the uh, there was a drawer. They pulled all the drawers out and in the bottom of one of, underneath one of the drawers was a, a letter that Nancy Ward wrote to George Washington. But it was in Thomas Jefferson's hands. Um, I believe they, they admired each other greatly in their skills of negotiation, of, of war. Thomas Jefferson directly saved my grandmother and my uncle Oconestoa uh, from being massacred. Um, and I can't tell you exactly which battle that, not a battle, but it was, they went to parlay to negotiate and they arrested um, uh, 13 chiefs, my grandmother and my uncle Oconestoa being one of those two of those. And um, my other uncle, Atakula Kula, went to Jefferson and told him what was going on. Jefferson procured the release of my grandmother and Oconestoa, and shortly thereafter, all 11 of those chiefs were massacred. So they were killed. Yes, they were killed. And, um, you know, they were afraid of us, you know, you know, I believe that in, when you're in battle, when you're in war and when you have multiple, um, countries or whatever you want to call them at that time, yes, they were countries. You got the English, you got the French, you got the Spanish, you know, and then as well as all the other native American tribes that were somewhat involved also. Uh, when they arrive at your doorstep with a gun and they go to do to do to do you need to do this guess what you're gonna do you're gonna do what they yeah. ask you to do i believe i i am sure that our side was truly for the colonialists because if you if the colonialists can win this then that gets rid of the french it gets rid of the english and it gets rid of the spanish and we felt we would be more protected now, were there times we went French and Spanish and English? Well, yes. But if, if, if death is eminent doom, is at your door? You do what you got to do to survive. It's, it's not that we were, 
you know, crummy people that, you know, just did whatever. You do whatever you got to do to preserve the life of your family and your friends. And, you know, it is what it is. And you would do the same thing. And by Joe, probably I would too. Maybe in 99% other than the devil, you know. And that's what I kind of have to think about. But, you know, it's it's amazing that a woman in the 1700s was able to accomplish as much as they did, especially when you're dealing with all these men from all these different countries that don't for, uh, perceive women as oh, well, uh, yeah, negotiators, leaders, lawyers. Yeah, yeah. So it was a miracle. It's a miracle that she lived. And then there's even different parts of my own, um, uh, the Cherokee, that believe one thing and one side believes another. The Western band of Native Americans thinks she's, you know, a pretty pretty great lady. And then there's, you know, others that call her a traitor. And um, because, you know, she gave up, she gave up her cousin a couple times, you know, and what he was fixing to do. And his name was Dragon Canoe. And he was also in our history books, most of them, at least until the 80s. I don't know about now. But um, Dragon Canoe was, he formed his own part of the Cherokee called the Chickamauga, the Chickamauga Cherokee. And um, that was a fraction of the tribe that branched off to fight. They were, you know, warriors. They wanted to follow him. And Nancy's going, okay, so here you've got three very famous leaders, four, all from one family, Aconisto, Atacula, Dragon Canoe, and Nancy. Now, they had to have been working in tandem because if they weren't working in tandem, for sure Dragon Canoe would have killed my grandmother if he thought she was a traitor. You know, it was a war plan. You know, do well necessarily understand a plan of battle and plan of war and who's going to play what part in, in each different scenario? No. So, you know, I wish I knew exactly everything, but um, I don't. And Nancy, you know, had a job to do. She did her job very well. And she lived to be 80, I think it was 84, 85 years old. And if she was a traitor, they would have killed her. They they would have killed her. And it's the only thing that makes any sense. And if you stop and think about it, it's got to make sense to everybody because he was one of the fiercest warriors the Cherokee ever produced. And, um, you know, he was bad after everybody. <laughs> he didn't care. He, he'd go in and burn your town down. He didn't care. He wanted the whites out of our region. You know, we would negotiate. This is our land. This is our land. This is our... Okay, well, you can have this part, but just please just leave us and have this land here. Please right. stay off of it. Don't come hunt and steal our food. You're stealing our food. You're stealing our food, which is our lifeline. You can't do that. Stay over there and on, on your own land. And that's what most of these skirmishes were about. They were about mm-hmm. food. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're talking uh, the 1700s here. So but I would think in my cow. mind, and I and I could, I know the smallpox played a, a big role as well, but in mm. uh, in my mind, I would imagine that the Native Americans outnumbered the colonists because the Native Americans were here first. We did. Was, was, was there a lot of tribal, uh, different tribes 
battling. Well, there are, but you know, that, that didn't allow the Native Americans to come together as one and prevent this from happening. Uh, they should have, and they very easily probably could have. Um, technically, if you're Iroquois, Delaware, Cherokee, and a couple others, it's all the same people. We we share all the same genetic genetics. We were all splinter tribed off of, I believe it was the Delaware, Powhatan. Um, Pocahontas was Powhatan. And somewhere or another, Nancy's father was a descendant of that line also. So there is the connection there to uh, to Pocahontas also, which a lot of folks aren't you know, aware of. And we can't prove it. I mean, I bet you if we would all... Uh, you know, sign up for the DNA thing. I mean, I, I did do the uh, ancestry, and uh, years before, you know, I probably understood I probably shouldn't have done it uh, because of the cultural beliefs of the Cherokee. But anyways, I did it. Can't hide from it. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, five killer. It, it may, the or, or at least so you, the the Native Americans wouldn't have lost. Almost all the all the land could, could have maybe been a better coexistence no. if if um, sure if they wanted our gold and silver, honey. That's what they wanted. They wanted our gold, our silver, our copper mines. That's what most of it was over, darling. You know, mm. land. Yes, no. They wanted those mines. They wanted the mines. They didn't get them all, and they still never found them all. Okay, <laughs> of this I am pretty sure. Um, you know, they seized a lot of lands. If you take a look at um, the old settler rolls, um, which were done up by, you know, of course, the white people, and it would have like, uh, okay, um, here underneath this house, here we've got um, um, the um, Star family. So the father of the stars, let's just go ahead and call him, you know, um, Emmett, Emmett Star. Okay, here's Emmett Star's name. Emmett owned 150 acres that were tillable. He owned another 250 acres of wood. He owned a copper mine, a gold mine, and he had X amount of children, and please don't take offense, X amount of slaves. Now, Slaves, when they were here, when they escaped their southern captors or whoever, whoever was holding them, they would come to our place. They came to our place for sanctuary. They didn't come to our place to be, you know, our, you know what I'm saying, our slaves. They came to join, and we accepted them. We brought them in. We called them our own. We adopted them. If you were a slave in the 1700s, you were a slave from the minute you were born to the minute you died. That's who you were. We didn't use you guys like that, you know, or the, 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 the black people like that. There's people that say we did. It's not true. It's, I just don't believe it. They were, they were brought in as, as friends, and you were safe there, you know. And, you know, what people don't understand about that, you know, don't want Nancy Ward was a slave owner. Okay, to us. But they were her friends. They weren't her, her workers. So, you know, you have to take a step back, understand the history of the area, and, under, you know, 
we're we're 200 years away from that stuff you know and why people the black people were loved cherokee people loved the black people they they just did you can read about it all over the place and um you know, you have to take a step back from history. You have to understand the dynamics of what was going on in the 1700s. You can't compare it to today. So if you um, look at it that way, then you kind of get an understanding. You know, they would come in and raid our town and and steal people that they didn't believe belonged there. There was all kinds of people that came to hide in Chotamos especially because it was a town that she ran and it was a town of sanctuary. If you made it into the, to the walls of, of Chota, you were safe. It didn't matter who you were. If you were a Creek Indian, if you were a Delaware, if you were an Apache, it just didn't matter. Or a white person. didn't matter. So I thought that was um, a neat thing about her her town. You were safe when you, once you got there. But that is the it, 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 is a woman of many names. Is this a is this biographical or is this like a fictional with biographical uh, or factual elements? It has to go in as fictional because I did add everything together. This is white man's books. I read all the white man's books that have been written about her. I read. Um, I'm not read, but then it was my family stories put together. And it was also the gift that I received in, in Benton that day. So it's all a combination of all of it. So, yes, it went fictional. But it's okay. based on based on true stories. And okay. so far, as far as I'm, nobody said, you are definitively wrong. And it's been almost three years. So I haven't had anybody come at me going, you're wrong. Um, you know, and sometimes you have to use discernment. I mean, you know, there's, I've got two, you know, probably close to a hundred books in there that she's, you know, maybe mentioned in a sentence, a paragraph, or she's got a whole chapter, and, you know, you're taking in, I'm taking in all this information, and then I had to sit down and pray. You know, God, show me which one's right. You know, so, you know, so, so yes, fiction. Based on that. How did and how did Nancy? How did a lot she of love foretell? put in there too. Because there are uh, I'm sure. Pieces. I'm sure. How, how, how did I know Nancy, about those? <laughs> how did how did Nancy foretell the Trail of Tears? How did she like? How did she, she that she come said. to her? She would have been in her fifties, and she said, "I see my people walking in a line with tears streaming down their face." She was a visionary. Mm-hmm. She had the power of, uh, not the power, but the the gift of, of, of precognition of sight. And, um, um, you know, we, as a people still today, we've just got this overwhelming, burning desire to know the future, to know the past. And I believe as a people we're sensitive to that. And, you know... I, you know, you don't want people to think you're crazy. I'm not a crazy old lady. Uh, I have had these gifts from the time I was very young that I never understood, that I would see things or hear things. And I, and I've been, I've been to 
I've spent time with psychiatrists and psychologists, you know, because it's scary as a person that has these things happen to them and get these images and feelings and visions, whatever you want to call them. What do you do with that? Can you tell me what it is you're supposed to do with that? Because I've not been able to figure it out. Okay, so Mm. I dreamed that my friend was going to get hurt. So I call my friend and go, you know, please be extra careful. Just please be extra careful today. And my good friends know me well enough to know that if I call them and tell them to be extra careful today, they need to be extra careful. Um, I don't get that in every circumstance, but there's many, you know, that it just happens. You know, Mm. what's the sex of that baby? I can hear babies talking from their mother's bellies, and I kind of know if they're a boy or a girl. You know, can you explain that? No. Mm-hmm. Can you explain yeah. that to anybody else? Not very right. easily. I, well, it's just uh, maybe it's they just think a whack job. Yeah, no. It, it, and it, maybe everybody, it's out there for everybody. It's who who is open to receive the message. That's the one who's going to receive it. Based on your research, uh, Deborah. Was there any way that Nancy's friendship with George Washington, you think, could have helped prevent the trail of tears? No. There's some powerful connections. You don't think? No, because it was supposed to. This was what was supposed to have happened. For my grandmother's contribution to the Revolutionary War, she was supposed to have that land. Her land was to be held in perpetuity for as long as America was America for her children and her grandchildren. They took it. Then even to Congress, we went back to Congress with it in the 60s to try to regain grandma's lands for the family. They said no. Mm. Now, what has happened since um, since the week before the book was actually published, I mentioned the, the town of Chota. Some people call it Choti. Um, I believe it's Chota. Um the land was given to the Eastern Band Cherokee from the state of Tennessee. They did give us back my grandma's town. What's left of it? Because the little the, ten, the little Tennessee River got flooded there, part of the TVA flooding for the dam stuff, and most of that land is now underwater. So it really don't make a big. But we did get a piece uh, of it back for town. What what was above water we was returned to to, to the Cherokee people. So, you know, I think that's amazing. And my next prayer then has been for a place called Red Clay. Um, Red Clay was our where we went to meet all the different Cherokee tribes. Because each, you know, kind of area had their own, you know, leader, their own chief. They ruled themselves. But we would come together to make big decisions. Red Clay is one of those towns where we would come together to celebrate different things. It's where the sacred flame, the fire was held because every year we would put out our fires and a runner would come from Red Clay with a new flame and relight everybody's fires once a year. So it's kind of like, um, I don't know, a cleansing sort of thing, um, a new a, a new place. So it's a beautiful area and there's a place there called um, the blue hole or the magic hole, what I call it's called the blue hole, and some people do call it the magic hole, and it's a very deep spring that just like pops up out of nowhere, and then the color is fabulously beautiful, and um, it's also is there also, which is 
the water that we would use to make our medicines with and what we called the black drink, which was what, I don't know, they put some crazy herbs and stuff in it. You drink and you hallucinate for a few days and then you go to war. <laughs> like, mm. oh, yeah, I want to try that. I want to try this black drink. Never have. But anyways, because I want to know what that experience was like from that, for them. You know, did they, you know, I'm sure they hallucinated and saw a lot of crazy things. But, you know, um, so it's a very, very um, place that's endeared to, to our people. And that is now a park called Bread Clay. Um, there's a lot of land there they could give my people back. Some of it. Um, you know, the Cherokee National Forest, you know, part of that. Um, I think it would be a wonderful gesture on the state of Tennessee to give us a little bit more of that back so that it would be a place that just Cherokee could go to, not Western right. Band, not Eastern Band, just plain old Cherokee. I believe my uh, grandmother gave me this story at this particular point in time in hopes that someday we'll just be the Cherokee again. And, oh, okay. um, um, and then I, as we come down to like our last three minutes, I wanted to ask you, you know, everywhere you go almost, you, you wherever there were Native Americans or indigenous people, you will see little history facts about them, somebody selling clothing that might have looked like something that a, a Native American wore. Why do you think so many people mm-hmm. seem so fascinated with Native Americans, but they they get angry or dislike when indigenous people stand up for the race? The the anger goes to just old built-in hatred, uh, I believe. Uh, the fascination with us, we're still here. <laughs> we're still here. God saved Native Americans from one end to the other. He didn't save all tribes. No particular reason I would assume why. We're still here. We're still practicing a lot of our our old ways. Are they different than what they were 200, 300 years ago? I'm sure they are because the government stopped us from using our own language for so many years. I mean, that was a beatable offense. That was you get yourself beat up for for being a Cherokee and being in a one of those schools that they sent some of our people to, our children to. They took our children from us to try to convert them into just being white, like white people. We were not allowed to speak the language, practice the customs. If you were, you were punished severely. You were beaten. So guess what? You did. You stopped. And I, I just think it's a pure fascination. And what beautiful people we are. You know, we're all... You know, have something to offer to this world. Cherokee Nation, you know, that the, 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 the song, you know, we will rise again. I believe that, you know, the signs are all there. They need to listen to our old ways and maybe help the future of this country out in some ways. We cannot, cannot forget the past. You can't wipe out all these these. these beautiful monuments that may have represented something different than what we accept today but it was the way of life 300 years ago to go and tear down anything I'm a northerner girl my family fought in the civil war on the north and gave up our lives to set black people free that was us up there all those crazy republicans up north that sent our sons and our fathers and 
off to war to fight to set people free within the borders of our own country. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. forgotten today. It's forgotten. It's forgotten. Mm-hmm. No, we are not well, evil as- people. Oh, no, yes, absolutely. Yes. Oh, no. Like I say, people are fascinated with in, in Native Americans, but when you stand up for their rights and say, I want this land or I want this or right. I don't want to go right. to that school, and, and then then people right. get angry, like, what do you mean yes. you don't you want your rights? What do you, what do you mean? It's almost yes. like we love you as long as I know, as it's crazy. Everything we it, say. And that, and that goes across a lot of cultures. We love you. We adore you. Absolutely. Just do everything we say and act like you're happy while you're doing it. And, and everything will, will be all right. We are not of one mindset. This country mm-hmm. was not built on one mindset. It really wasn't. And if it was, it was a religious mindset because that's why most of the folks came over here is because they were being killed for being, you know, being Protestants, being Jews, being be in their own thing over there. Oh, no, you're not Catholic, you're dead. Or, no, you're not Catholic, you're out of here. No, you're not a Protestant, you're gone. You know, it was craziness. Also, one of my uh, seventh great grandfathers was a um, a Scottish lad <laughs> that got kicked out because he was a Jacobite. <laughs> so he came to America, served his seven years, and decided to stay with the Cherokee. <laughs> you know, we weren't bad people, or all these people wouldn't have been staying. They know right. we're civilized tribes. They they know we tried to assimilate, to you know, to accustom the white man to to get along with them to to do our best to kind of blend in. Okay, we were darker skinned, darker haired. Okay, we wore beads, but our clothing changed, and trying to gain that acceptance that just truly was never there. It was never there. The intent was to take our land, to take our gold, to take our water, take our silver, take our copper, and anything else in between. That's where it was. And that's what it was all about. It's about greed. Greed. It wasn't because we weren't getting along. Because when they booted us out in the 1830s, trust me, we were getting along pretty good. We were living in log cabins. We always did live in log cabins, only the logs went up and down instead of sideways. Okay, it's like we were civilized human beings. We had beds. They just weren't cotton ticks. They were, you know, you know, we dug a hole in the ground. You know, we dug our, our little uh, houses down into the ground. They were three or four deep. Why? Because it was warmer. <laughs> we weren't stupid. <laughs> you know, we just, you, know it, you could go. We could go on. I could talk to you for two more hours, and trying right. to explain our culture and and the love that the Native Americans have for this land and for the for people, for all people. Mm-hmm. You know, you do what you got to do. We're not living in the seventeen and eighteen hundreds anymore. You know, right. it's like somebody was talking about reparation the other day, and I said, "Oh, wouldn't that be a blimey mess?" You know, why should the why should my neighbors that had no part in anything that went on two, three, four hundred years ago give up one red cent of their money to me. It makes no sense. What's done is done. Could they give us some of our land back? Yeah, 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 they could do that. That doesn't cost anybody anything. But... It's for me expecting my neighbors to give me money for reparations for something they didn't do. 
and maybe that their ancestors didn't do because they weren't here because they were over being, you know, held up somewhere in some other. No, it makes no sense. Does it sound pretty? Yes, it does, but you won't. That is a can of worms we cannot open and fix because you got to prove it. you got to be able to put your hands on paper all the way back to the 1700s and prove who you were. Not easy. Most of them will yeah. never find that paperwork. Can you, right before we close, can you tell our off-the-shelf listeners again where they can get a copy of A Woman of Many Names? Yes, uh, author Deborah S. Yates can be purchased at Barnes Noble, Books a Million, um, many and many other bookstores. You can order it at Amazon, and um, to you in just a few days. They generally always have about you know six to thirteen copies available at, at each time, and um, you know you can go to Facebook and search Woman of Many Names. Go on that site, click like. You know, and you can, you know, view all my interviews that I've done and and also send you a link to where to order the book straight from the publisher. But um, I hope some people do buy it and read it. I I need somebody. Nancy Ward's story needs to be a movie. Our young girls need somebody that they can look up to that's not a cartoon character. Somebody that lived and breathed and did good on this earth. Maybe some bad along the line too. But <laughs> the good outweighed the bad. And we weren't we weren't living every day to survive. Every breathing moment that you had was about survival. You know, you know, we're we're worried about, you know, is my is my power on? <laughs> is my car running? You know, those were luxuries that we didn't have back then. And people were about surviving. Every single minute of every single day was about survival. So, you know, you do what you got to do to protect your loved ones, to protect your family, to protect your children, so that they've got a place in the smoke of time in the future. And that's today. And that's what I am. I'm a seventh great granddaughter. And I am, as far as I know, the first grandchild to write a book on her. And um, my cousin Becky Hobbs has written a beautiful musical called Nanyi that, you know, traverses her entire life. This book focused on birth to about 18, 19 years old because there was no definitive writings on that time. And I wanted an homage to my grandpa, Kingfisher, that was a, that was a wonderful chief and, and did great things for his people too. And he was barely touched on other than he was her husband and he died. So I thought, I'm telling that story. And I may tell another one. I've been asked by um, Monticello to come back, do research um, in uh, Thomas Jefferson stuff. She, they pulled, they, the lady goes, oh, I've never heard of her. And I went, okay, her name is Do-Do-Do-Do. She looked up Nancy Ward, appeared 17 times. She goes, didn't know anything about no Nancy Ward. That's wrong. And I went, okay, yeah, that's wrong, all right. So um, I may do that yet. I Okay. Just haven't had time yet. I've been busy with this book and a lot of, you know, just life in general going on around me. Right. Okay. But, we, we want and and for off the shelf listeners who want to know more about uh, Deborah Yates' book, Woman of Many Names, you can go over to Deborah Yates' Facebook page where she will post information about. But the book is available at Barnes and Noble and uh, Amazon and other online and offline 
a book retailer, so I encourage you to get a copy, Woman of Many Names, by Deborah Yates, who is the seventh generation great-granddaughter of Nancy Ward, who was a great uh, leader of the Cherokee Nation, particularly in the Tennessee area. We want to thank Deborah for being here with us here this morning on Off the Shelf, and thank all each of you are off the shelf listeners. Please come back next week when we will have another great phenomenal guest for here for you on Off the Shelf. Remember, set your clock eleven AM Eastern Standard Time Saturday mornings to catch Off the Shelf. Eleven AM Eastern Standard Time or New York City Time. Thank you so much, Deborah. Thank you to all all of our listeners. As I always tell you, you are awesome. You are amazing. You are incredible. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Happy Passover and happy Easter. Deborah, I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now. Go, honey. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.